If you have a Bible, open with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the Easter story, the resurrection story from Mark's gospel this morning. Mark chapter 15 should be on the screen or there's a Bible around you. Um, It's page 853 in those Bibles if you grab one of those. I'm going to be starting in Mark chapter 15, reading verses 40 uh, down into 16, a couple verses there. So Mark chapter 15, we'll start in verse 40 this morning, then we'll pray and we'll jump in together. Mark 15, verse 40. Hear the word of the Lord. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among from were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they found him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the large stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you that you haven't left us in the dark, that actually we can read these eyewitness accounts together. And see what went on that day. That we're not left in the dark. You're a communicating God. You're a speaking God. And you want to speak into our lives through your son. That he is alive. That the tomb is empty. So help us see that. Help us believe that. Help us walk in that. Help us marvel at that this morning. Wherever we come in this morning. Help us Holy Spirit now. In Jesus name. Amen. One of the the challenges that's your challenge and that's also my challenge is that the story of Easter becomes so familiar, right? The the power and the beauty and the weight of what is going on of the empty tomb can be so so normal and so ordinary, so it can become sentimental, right? We put on our our suits, we put on our ties, we we, we do Easter eggs because nothing says resurrection like Easter eggs. But we, we kind of lose sight of what it is all about and what is going on. And then we also assume that there's nothing that resurrection or nothing that the Easter story has to say to my life because this happened 2,000 years ago, an empty tomb with, with this guy Jesus. What does it even, even matter? 
But what's so astounding is when we look at our text this morning and we look at the accounts of the Easter story and Resurrection Sunday is that one of the details you'll notice is there's always an angel involved. That's actually this man who's sitting in the tomb speaking to the disciples and the the women who came to, to, to see the body of Jesus. But see, these angels are the ones that have to give kind of this this life-altering message to these fearful, scared uh, disciples and women. And and, and because Jesus has been telling them for for years, actually, multiple years, that I'm going to die and I'm going to resurrect from the dead. But nobody's to be found at the tomb to say, well, maybe this did happen. And so God uses an angel on multiple ways. And as you look at different accounts, you'll see there's little different details but to speak a life-changing, altering event that this changed their lives forever. And it can change our lives forever. So I just want to take just a few moments, the story that seems so familiar, and, and look at the, the ways in which this angel speaks to them and speaks to us this morning and how the resurrection has immense implications for your life and for my life even Today, So there's three big implications that I want to look at just this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus will challenge the mind. It'll challenge our worldview. It'll also give grace to our hearts and it'll also give us a new life trajectory, a new mission for life. I just want to look at those, those three ideas this morning as we look at our, our, our text. And so first, the, the resurrection of Jesus, it'll, it challenges our, our mind. You, you notice this, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, he's, he's gone to Pilate, and Pilate's even confused, like, oh, is he, is he dead yet? I, I don't know what's, what's going on. And this would be very common in the first century that someone would die, and they would take the dead body and bring it into a, a tomb, and then they would prepare this body with a burial shroud of some kind. And then later they would anoint this body and they would put spices over this body because you can imagine a a body that's decomposing in a first century desert. It's going to smell very bad very quickly. And so that's exactly what Joseph is doing. He's not expecting resurrection. He's just doing what you do when when someone dies is you put him in a tomb and you let him rot there. That's normal. He's not expecting resurrection. But then you, you see these women who come around the, the tomb, Mary Magdalene, the, the Mary the mother of Josie and Salome. See that in 1547. 40, and Joseph brought a linen shroud. We, we just heard that. And then these women come, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Josie, saw where he was laid. So they saw exactly the tomb where Jesus was. But when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance? Looking up, they saw a stone had been rolled back. And I love the detail that Mark puts. It was very large. (laughs) And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Now, this is an interesting detail because these women are not expecting resurrection. If they're expecting resurrection, the idea that going to, this te- going to the tomb and, 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 and wrapping him and anointing him, and, and he's going to smell, so they've got to put you know, some, some spices around the body as it decomposes. This is very typical. They're not expecting resurrection. And it's exactly why the angel has to show up and give them a message of hope, a life-altering message to say, hey, you're seeking this Jesus of Nazareth, but, but he's not here. <laughs> and the greatest words that the, the universe has ever heard, he has risen, he is not here, in that moment changed every single one of them. 
Their expectations of resurrection was, was not there. They did not, even though Jesus has told them multiple times that this was going to happen, the expectation of resurrection was not there. They're going to prepare a dead corpse. Now, why is, is, is this important? Why is this a challenge to the mind? Because these disciples aren't the first ones that have struggled with the idea of resurrection. Um, in the early church, uh, in Paul, uh, for, uh, in Paul, pa- Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, the early church, shortly after the resurrection of Christ, struggled with this idea of resurrection too, maybe like you and I do. The, this idea that dead men don't come alive, dead people don't come back to life. The dead men don't go to crosses and spill out their blood and, and, and cry out and, and die and go into tombs and then come back to life. That's just not our normal rhythms of, of life. And so um, in 1 Corinthians 15, you may be familiar with this, this text. It's a great resurrection text. I'd encourage you to go read it later this day after your ham or whatever you're doing. Um, but 1 Corinthians 15, here's a group of people that are struggling with this idea of resurrection. And in verse 19, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So he's saying that, that all those who have gone asleep, all those that, that, that have died, if Jesus hasn't raised from the dead, they're dead. There's no hope here. And he builds out his argument, and he continues to build on that. And he also says that, that, that if there is no resurrection of the dead, if Jesus hasn't bodily raised from the dead, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. I, I could say it this way. My job, what I'm doing right now, is absolutely pointless and a waste of time. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead. He says it's futile, it's vain, it's empty, it's worthless. And our faith is, is, is useless, is worthless. If Jesus is not resurrected from the dead, then we worship a dead deity and there is no hope and it doesn't make any sense. Because Paul would even say that we're misrepresenting God. We're simply lying on his behalf, leading people astray. That's all I'm doing right now is just saying, ha, 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 it's all a game, it's all a hoax. But he also says something very profound. He also says that we're still in our sins. If there's no resurrection, that means there was no cross and none of it matters that we're still in our sins. We're still separated from God. We can't have life with God. There's a barrier between us. If Jesus hasn't accomplished everything by his resurrection, sin is still the air we breathe. There is no chance of forgiveness. There is no chance of salvation. There is no chance of remedying our broken, flawed separation between God and us. And then he says something Absolutely profound. If there is no resurrection, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If this is all there is, all the sin, all the struggle, all the sorrow, all the injustice, death and taxes, if that's all there is in this life only, what we can see and touch and experience, we are the most to be pitied. Amen? Amen. It's the worst possible universe there is. There's no hope then. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Live it up, because there's nothing beyond this. Get it all in now, right? 
And you see that just like the early Christians, they struggled with resurrection just like we do. But, but Jesus has stepped out of the tomb to challenge our minds and challenge our expectations to say there's something greater and deeper and more profound going on by Jesus stepping out of a tomb. It's not just an inspirational example uh, so that we can open Easter eggs and have ham together once a year and bring out our best suits. The resurrection story wants to challenge our minds. And there's a couple other reasons I find just absolutely compelling is that in the time of Jesus, there were these messianic movements going on during the time of Jesus. And so there were many people coming along saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior. And one of the things that, that you notice in these messianic movements in the first century is that when their leader died, the movement died as well. But that's not the Easter story. That's not the Christian story. That's not the story of the Christian church, is it? That actually when the leader died and rose from the dead, the movement got stronger and stronger and stronger. That we know from history that after the first three centuries of the church, the church went from this ragtag group of 11 to about 120 to about 20 million people in the first 300 years of the church. That doesn't happen if the, the leader of the movement, the, the Messiah who has come, this leader, if, he, if he's dead in a tomb somewhere, something happened in resurrection because this thing can never take off the ground, I can guarantee you, because they have no resources, they have no power, they have no influence in the Roman Empire, they're not smart enough, they don't have enough money, they don't even have a leader, they don't have a pope, they don't have a, a priest, but something happened in the resurrection that made these believers stronger and stronger and stronger because the tomb was empty. And the fact that you are sitting in this room is not because this is a social experiment to get a bunch of people in the room and and speak lies to each other. Actually, we have nothing in common. The only thing that we have in common is the fact that the tomb is empty. You're a walking miracle in this place right now. This thing goes away real quick if the tomb is not empty. It makes no sense. There's two billion Christians on the planet as I'm speaking these words to you right now. And we are witnesses of that resurrection. And we've been changed by this resurrection because of what Christ has done. We also know there, there's just how it challenges our mind is these eyewitness accounts. In the ancient times, eyewitness accounts were everything, right? They didn't, they, weren't a, a, they didn't write things down like we do. It's a very oral culture. It's an eyewitness type culture. So when things happened, they wanted to make sure that things were good and things actually happened the way they did. And, and if we go back to Paul's account, In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talking here earlier on in chapter 15, the resurrection chapter, which is great. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse uh, 5, he says that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the 12, talking about Jesus after he resurrected from the dead. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. That Jesus appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people resurrected from the dead, fully alive. As alive as you can see my body right now. Because there was a challenge to our worldview that resurrection is not supposed to happen, but it did happen, and it happened through the God band. They weren't trying to pull a fast one. They weren't trying to say, hey, let's start a new movement. Let's start a new religion based on nonsense. Let's lead people astray. They had seen this resurrected Christ and said, well, all the things he was talking about did come true. Something's going on here. What are we supposed to do with this? We know dead people don't come back to life. What was even more amazing was 
Notice, too, the first people on the scene are women. First century culture, an eyewitness of a woman would have been thrown aside. They weren't seen as worthy. They weren't seen as as relevant in their culture. They were oppressed. They were pushed aside. Women and children were treated like garbage in the first century. If I'm going to tell a lie and a legend about myths, I'm not going to include women. If I want to pull a fast one, my first eyewitnesses aren't going to be women. <laughs> How about miracles in general? I mean, God, I mean, Ryan, Pastor, I mean, come on. First century people, agrarian people, I mean, they don't believe in, I mean, I mean they didn't, I, I mean, they, they don't, they're not modern like us. They, they, have, they don't even have science like we do. I mean, that, of course they believe in resurrection and, you know, they're skeptical. You know, I mean, they, of course they had to because they, they weren't smart. They didn't go to Yale like us. They didn't have science textbooks like us that could say, well, obviously resurrection can't happen. People can't come back to life. But did they? Did they really? I actually don't think that's true. I don't think they had this robot, well, we're just, we're not smart enough and we're not educated enough, so we don't, we just believe in supernatural because that's all we have. There's, there's nothing else. The world is a, a closed system. Then this makes no sense. Jesus in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10 tells his disciples, I'm going to die and I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. Three different times, right in a row. And through his whole ministry for three years, he says, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. Now, if I had a robust, um, supernatural understanding of resurrection, I think I might go to the tomb after he's dead and see what is going on, because Jesus told me time and time again that this guy was going to be resurrected. But nobody's there. Nobody's there. All his friends abandon him. So as much as we would say, well, you know, I mean, these people just, they didn't get it. They don't have the information that we have. They're nowhere to be found. The women show up. They're not expecting to to have this angel speak to them and say, hey, he's not here. He's risen. I know you're looking for him, but he's not here. And Jesus tells his disciples time and time again. You see, Jews in Jesus' day, they had kind of a general idea of a future resurrection. And then even Greeks that lived in that day, they had this kind of nebulous separation of body and soul. They really didn't believe in physicality. They thought body and matter was, was evil. You see, they didn't have these, these built-out things that said, like, oh, yeah, resurrection happens all the time. I'm going to believe in that. It's a little bit what Francis Schaeffer says. He calls the resurrection true truth. (laughs) The reason he calls it true truth is because it's not my truth. It's not your truth. It's everyone's truth because it's verifiable in history. And it's verifiable because it's an event that actually happened. So it's not left up for us to just sit there and go, well, I think it might be this, it might be that. It happened. People saw, hundreds and hundreds of people saw. Pagan historians wrote about the resurrection and said, yeah, but it happened. And, and, and even in Paul's gospel, he's saying, hey, you can go even go talk to, to Larry down the road. He saw him raised from the dead too, if you don't believe us. We were there. We saw it with our own eyes. The resurrection wants to challenge our minds, wants to challenge us to the reality that the world isn't just a closed system with no hope and no future. But the resurrection also wants to give us grace to our hearts. 
the angel sends in, in verse 7, sends for Peter and the other disciples, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before us to Galilee. Why is it significant? Who's Peter? The one they're going to build the church on, of course. The solid, stable, emotionally healthy, heroic man of God. If you know the story, that's not Peter at all, at all right? Right to Jesus' faith. I will never disown you, Rabbi. I'll never deny you. And Jesus is like, well, I am God. I, you will deny me three times. And you'll be nowhere to be found when I die and I am resurrected from the dead. So here's Peter, this, this frail disciple like you and I. Nowhere to be found. His closest disciples, his closest friends, nowhere to be found. Now, what's so interesting is there's no sense of animosity from the angel that says, go find that backstabbing Peter. Go find that one who abandoned the Savior who's clueless. There's none of that. He simply says to the women, go, go and find them. There's good news to tell. He's, he's alive. And, and we see in Luke chapter 24, one of the other accounts in Luke chapter 24, verse 34, it says, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, who's Peter. Then they told what had happened to the, on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So there are these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're clueless too. And then Jesus kind of shows up, and then he's kind of playing with them a little bit and says, Hey, let me tell you about this, uh, what really happened, and let me show you where I am in the Scriptures. I'm all over the place. But then he says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace. To you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do your heart why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, see my feet. This is that, that is I myself. Touch me, see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see it they ha- that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? I love that. One of the greatest lines in all of Scripture. Here's the, the risen King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's hungry. You guys have any snacks? Which would also say he is fully bodily resurrected from the dead. Spirits don't need snacks. Spirits don't need snacks. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. I don't know what your conception of grace is or resurrection is, but Jesus is standing before them. And here is his disciples who have abandoned him, who have broken his heart. The ones he told them multiple, multiple times, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead. They were nowhere to be found. And the first words that he utters out of his mouth is, peace be with you. Not the words I would have said. Probably not the words you would have said. Hey, Peter, can we talk over here? Friend? But what's going on here? What Jesus is doing is he's showing us what he's like. He's showing 
Himself to be God. If we've seen the Father, we've seen the Son, John 14 says. If we've seen uh, Jesus, we've seen the Father. If you have any conception of what God is like, He's a God who says, Peace be with you, my traitors, my enemies, sinners, rebels among you. Peace be with you. See, that's how the, the gospel works. The gospel's for the weak. The gospel's for sinful people like you and me. It's for failures. It's for those that don't have, put, have it put all together. It's not for the self-sufficient. It's not for the self-confident. It's those that know they need the grace of God in their life. Jesus gives grace to Peter. And can you imagine how his heart was changed in that moment? And actually, we have the whole Bible to tell you it was changed radically as he becomes one of the greatest leaders of the movement, and also the, the disciples, the same ones who abandoned them, become the greatest leaders of the movement. Why? Because grace had touched their heart. Peace be with you. There's no repentance that we can see here. It's a little bit like Jesus on the cross, right? There's no repentance of the, of the man who's, who's being crucified next to him. He just says, can you just remember me, Jesus? I don't know what his faith looked like, but it was pretty shallow. Right? I mean, he didn't have, you know, atonement theory. He didn't read John Stott. He had no Tim Keller on the shelf. He just said, can you remember me? And he's like, there will be a place for you in heaven. What, how, how big and deep is his faith? It's not very big. It seems like it doesn't take much for us to get in on the action, does it? That we can abandon him, we can fail him in every single way, and yet Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God of God says, peace be with you, Ryan. Peace be with you. And he still says that to you and to me today. It's grace for the heart. And what's so beautiful about grace, and the more we understand the depths of our own sin, our own depravity, our own rebellion, our own self-sufficiency, the greater we actually experience grace. I think of that, that beautiful story in Luke chapter 7. The woman with the alabaster jar, she comes to Jesus and all these religious people are freaking out because she's a sinner. We probably believe she's a prostitute of some kind. And she comes to Jesus and she, she breaks the alabaster jar and she, she pours it all over Jesus' feet and she's, she's worshiping him and loving him and, and adoring him in that moment. And here's what Jesus' response is in Luke seven forty seven. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. What in the world is going on here? Is this the God you have in your mind? Here's this woman. He acknowledges her sin. He says, hey, she's got all kinds of sins. We're not diminishing that at all. She knows that too. That's the fact that she's even sitting there. But the religious people have a hard time with her because they say, you can't forgive her. You can't, you can't bless her. You can't say peace be with you. There, there's no category for this. But what he says in that moment, what he says in that line is that if you don't understand the forgiveness that's been extended to you, the grace that's been extended to you, the mercy that's been extended to you, guess what? You're going to love little and you're going to forgive little. Because you've seen the darkness, 
You've seen the sin. You've seen the self-sufficiency. You've seen the ways in which you've said, God, no thank you. But the sweeter the grace gets, the sweeter the mercy gets. Amen? See, see we, we believe this, this little simple lie is that, you know, you guys always talk about sin and, and darkness and, okay, like enough already. But I can guarantee you the grace of God that's been given to you, the love of God that's been poured out to you, if you don't understand how deep that is and what he's done for you and how he poured out his, his blood, that grace will be taken for granted and it won't mean anything to you. If you think you're moral and you think you're good and you think you're awesome and self-sufficient, the grace that's been extended to you when Jesus speaks to you, peace be with you, will mean nothing to you. It won't do anything in your heart. There'll be no marveling, no adoring, no loving, no, oh my gosh, I can't even believe I'm part of the family of God. I'm a, I'm a walking miracle as I eat my ham this afternoon. I mean, guys, can we talk about this? This is amazing. I, I don't deserve this, that, that Christ died for me. I'm an enemy of God. I'm a rebel of God. Do you know what's in my heart still? Do you know the things that I think about? Do you know the where it's all headed. Do you know what I said to my wife last night? Are you kidding me? He says, come, peace be with you. Are you freaking kidding me? Excuse me? But if we think we're okay, grace means nothing. That's why I love the story of this woman. She gets it. Everything I own, Jesus, is yours. I've seen who you are. It's all yours. And you see, society would say that strength is what saves us, right? Pull up our bootstraps. Just got to work harder. We just got to, you know, even religion would say that, you know, it's, it's the morally nice, the nice, those who practice religious activities makes us right with, with God. I don't think those, any of those messages are true or good or helpful on any level. Because you just have to live long enough and you realize it doesn't work. But the gospel says it's weakness that saves us. It's the weak. It's the innocent for the guilty. Jesus comes. He accepts us because of his death, his resurrection. He walks out of the tomb of free man. It's by his obedience, not ours, that we are his children. That we are saved. The resurrection gives grace to the heart. It takes us out of the equation and says, you cannot do this. You cannot do it. Oh, there's so much grace. When I see Peter, I just go, oh, that's just me. That's so me. Should we chop off his ear, Jesus? And then lastly, the resurrection of Jesus creates a new trajectory for life. As the angel um, speaks to the the women here, um, if you go back to Mark, she sends them away with a, a new mission. It says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as you told him. And as they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonished had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. that It's not what they expected. They, they didn't expect to go to the tomb, as I've already said, to see this resurrected Jesus. But he said, the angel says, go, we got a mission for you. We've got a new trajectory for your life. When I just go, oh, let's celebrate. He's risen. Great. Wonderful. It's like, no, you've got to go tell some people. You've got to go tell the disciples. There's a, there's a mission that Jesus isn't done. He said there's actually going to be a mission that's going to come. That I must die first and I must suffer first, but I must be resurrected and then wait for power because now I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit because now we have good news to tell. Now we're going to go change the world. You with me? 
So he gives these disciples who have no money, no reputation, no wealth, no prestige of their day and says, I'm going to give you a new trajectory for your life. It's what I call the, the resurrection dynamic. It's how the resurrection of Jesus changes us. Well, how does it change us? How does it transform us? Well, it does a couple things, two things in particular. It gives us a freedom from the world. What do I mean by that? Why is it so hard to face death and suffering? Like, why do we just don't, I mean, the idea that we're not going to live forever, the, the fact that our bodies break down, suffering comes, the fact our loved ones die, cancer comes, all of these horrible things. Why is it so hard to face those things? Why is it so hard to do what is right? You know what's right. You, you want to be obedient to God. Why is it so hard to do what is right for fear that others will make fun of us, fear of that we'll lose our jobs, fear of whatever it may be? Why is it so hard? But what resurrection does is it tells us that our bodies in this world is not the last say. That death is not the last say and sin is not the last way. See, there's no religion that promises resurrected bodies. And why I find great comfort is that anyone in here have a disability? You don't have to raise your hand. That's going away. It's not permanent. At the resurrection, it's going away. Any of us bipolar, any of us struggle with depression, any of us just, just have bodies that are broken that just aren't working as God would want them to work, that's going away at the resurrection. Anyone have doubts and fear and anger and sin and, and, and all this stuff? Anybody have those things? Well, that's going away at the resurrection. Anybody have anxiety and worry about tomorrow? That will permanently be gone in the resurrection. See, it's a, a freedom that God gives us from the world that we begin to not care as much, that we can be brave, we can be generous, we can be loving, we can be risky. Why? Because we have hope. That our broken down bodies and minds and lives aren't the last say. We don't have to worry about FOMO, the fear of missing out. Because what's coming in the new heavens and the new earth are going to blow our minds. That we'll rule and reign with Christ for all of eternity and explore the universe for all of eternity and become more like Him for all of eternity. FOMO's lame when you have the whole universe to explore. The early Christians said it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4. We preached through this a few months back. Maybe it was a long, longer than that. I don't remember. Maybe it was last summer. It all bleeds together sometimes. But 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others that do not have hope. So those who have died, you don't grieve like those that don't have hope. We grieve differently. That's why Christian funerals are different. We don't grieve as those that have no hope. We have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And it's, we have this hope not because of us, not because of feeling, not because of intuition. It's because Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's where their hope lied. And then Paul says this interesting phrase in verse 18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Resurrection Sunday should be an everyday affair by encouraging you daily with these same words. Hey, Ryan, I know you're down today, but buddy, there's hope. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb. 
I know, Mary, I'm putting you on the spot, but I know you, you have some sickness. Jesus walked out of the tomb. There's hope. I know some of us struggle with depression. There's hope. Some of us, maybe not in this room, but are related to us, have cancer. There's hope. Encourage each other with these words. The resurrection is not just a a nice novel idea that we celebrate once a year, but it's a daily reality that we can use to encourage and build each other up. It's not the last day you lost a job, the resurrection, and there is hope. The body's breaking down, there is hope, Ryan. Your church thinks you're nuts and they want to fire you, there's hope. It's a daily reality. But there's also a freedom... Not from the world, but there's a freedom for the world. See, all, most religions are about escapism. Christianity is not escapism. Don't hear me as because we believe in resurrection that we're just waiting around for heaven like it doesn't, nothing matters. That, that, that's not the biblical narrative. That's not the, our story. It's not about getting off into another realm. We believe that heaven's going to crash with earth and everything will be remade. But, but we believe because of resurrection that we can work for change in the world. We can, can, can work for, for the realities that the world matters. Why? Because God's body obviously mattered. God is for matter. Jesus said, can I have a fish? I'm hungry. He didn't come as an angel. He didn't come as a spirit. He said, the whole universe matters. Things, stuff matter. Poverty matters. The environment matters. People that are being abused and and, and neglected matter. Foster care matters. Adoption matters. All of those things matter. Planting a tree, building a house, all of it matters in the economy of God because God cares about matter. Because one day we're going to rule and reign in an actual physical city where there is no more sin and no more death and no more hell, but matter matters. We're going to actually have resurrected bodies. I don't know exactly what they're going to be like, but I know they're not going to be broken down like this one. I know they're not going to be like my body. It takes four days to recover after trimming the lawn. Good God, help us. It's not going to be one of you know, my, can- my, my calves are just tightening up. Well, why? Because I have stairs in my house. Have you seen those stairs? It's a lot of them. Banana, water, help. The ordinary things of life, food, music, dancing, and this world will be renewed and made perfect. We can meet the needs of people with practical and sacrificial love. Why? Because we already have everything we need in Christ. We don't have to do anything. We're not earning anything. We're not adding to the story. It's all been done for us. He's given us a living hope. So if our bodies are breaking down or they're healthy as they've ever been, wherever we are, we can meet those needs. We can love our neighbors as ourselves. And that's also a reason why I think Jesus, as I shared in Luke 24, showed them his scars in his hands and on his feet. He wasn't just giving them an example of love. He says, touch them. The world matters. Resurrection matters. You have a mission. You have a new trajectory for your life. It all matters. The work you do on Monday matters. The raising of kids matters. It all matters because of the empty tomb. Jesus walked out of the tomb as a free man, and so does anyone who puts their trust in him. The Christians should be the most free people on the planet. 
Because all the things we know we can't do for ourselves, well, one, death is a big one. We can't fix our sin problem. We can't fix our bodies. We can't fix our minds. They're, they're fractured. They're, they don't function always as the way we want them to. All, all these things that, that God promises us in the resurrection are ours, that we're freed. We don't have to be anything. We don't have to prove anything. Our identity is secure in Christ, that I can hopefully love my wife while I love my kids while I don't always, by the way, just ask them. They'll be happy to tell you. My dad and mom are here. I don't love them perfectly. They can tell you too. I mean, I grew up with my dad. I mean, sorry, dad. I, I know you're not here every Sunday, but I, I tell my congregation, man, if I knew parenting was so stinking hard, I would have been a lot nicer to you. <laughs> and that's very truthful. If I didn't realize marriage was hard, I would have been nicer to you too. But what happens when we embrace this resurrection? What does it look like? Is there any picture we could give? And I just want to leave you with just this one text, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The, the one place I think I, I, we get a little glimpse of what does this look like is from Paul's confession in Philippians 3. Here's a man who has met the resurrected Christ. Here's a man who is basking in the grace of God one of the greatest missionaries we've ever seen. And he says these astounding words in Philippians 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead I love that confession I think that's what happens when we trust this savior who came out of the tomb is that we can make these bold claims and say I count everything in my life rubbish compared to knowing the grace and mercy and resurrection of Christ. Here's a Jew of Jew, a religious man that had everything, all the accolades, all the power, knew his Old Testament backwards and forward. He says, I don't care about any of that stuff. I don't care about any attainments in this life. The thing that I am marveling at is not how great I am or the trophies I win or the money I have or the American dream or what house I have or what stuff or how many toys I have. But in the end, the fact that I know this Christ, this resurrected Christ is everything. And I don't have to look to my own righteousness, my own moral deeds, that Christ has taken those too. That I'm a failure, I'm the chief of sinners, and yet he's done it all for me. I think we begin to walk in a resurrection power. We begin to go and tell the world the good news of Christ is when we can say things like, like Paul It's the greatest news there is. And it's changed everything. And and what I love about that is that didn't make Paul passive. It didn't make him say, well, you know, just I'll quit my job on Monday. 
And now he does his job with a total different trajectory in Ephesus. Now he, and he didn't have kids or wasn't married, but, but now we would, 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 would do marriage and parenting and we would uh, do uh, 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 how we love our neighbors and, and how we spend our time very differently when all of this is, is, is ours, when all of this is now ours by faith because Christ has done it. It gives a different trajectory on everything, doesn't it? How I handle failure, how I handle doubt, how I handle worry and anxiety, he's done it all. He walked out of the tomb a free man. And for all those who trust in this free man, we can become free men or free women in Christ. The empty tomb is a challenge to our minds because the world is in a closed system, that God and his resurrection has opened up all kinds of possibilities. The resurrection of Christ is grace to our hearts if you're a sinner like me. And the resurrection of Christ gives us a new trajectory and mission in life, gives meaning, new meaning to everything and how I understand my world and how I interact with it. If you come to New City Church every week, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We've sang this good news this morning. We've, we've heard about this good news, and now we can see and we can taste and we can touch this good news. The, the bread represents the broken body of Christ, that his body was crushed for us. The cup represents the blood that was sport, pour, poured out for us, atoning for our sins. And so we, we grab the bread, we break it off, and we dip it in the cup, and we symbolically and spiritually, we believe Jesus even comes and meets us here and says, grace and peace to you. You are forgiven. And we, we marvel at that. We celebrate that. And we'll have two servers up in the front. We break off the piece of the bread, dip in the cup. If you have any kind of allergies, gluten-free, nut-free bread is in the middle there. Please take that. And if you're not a believer in, in Christ this morning, we want to just encourage you to, to, to stay seated. Uh, but we have some prayers in our, in our little worship guide, uh, City Life, there to think on and reflect on. And, and we believe that the resurrection has changed everything. And, and so we don't think that's just a nice inspirational story. But if you want to talk more about that, we've all been there. I just want to challenge you to doubt your own doubts this morning. To doubt your own doubts this morning. I feel like we do that all the time. <laughs> anyway. Thank you, Lord, for the empty tomb. Let us pray. Father, what can we say? Sometimes words don't do it. But we thank you for the empty tomb. Help us sit with that longer than just before the ham is pulled out and food and help us just sit with that just for a moment today to think about all the implications that an empty tomb means to us to your people to your church to your world whatever worry is in this room any anxiety in this room depression fear physical pain God may your resurrection remind them of future hope Whatever struggle of sin, whatever thing, whatever problems with belief, whatever it is, God, may may your resurrection comfort their souls. And we believe it has the power to do that.
just like these early believers that didn't have a clue. And yet you used them, God, to literally transform the world. So God, show us again the good news. For your people, may it not be old news and just, yeah, I've heard that before. But may you reveal yourself in fresh and new ways. May you renew the joy of our salvation. So help us now by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Come celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.